As we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you because you are beautiful, because you are glorious, because you are the greatest of all. And Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of being able to worship you, that we're able to know you and know your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that this morning as we open your word to hear what it is that you have for us today, that you would please enable us to hear with soft hearts, that we might be drawn more to our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's true that fewer and fewer in our society know who Jesus is. But it's also true that amongst those who claim to know who Jesus is, that there are fewer and fewer who have real clarity on exactly the character of that Jesus. In fact, there are many in our nation today, and particularly even those who have grown up in the quote-unquote evangelical church, who have, I would say, dysfunctional views of Jesus, wrong views about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Namely, they believe that Jesus is there simply to help them feel better. It's based upon a a survey of those who have grown up in the evangelical church believing in a therapeutic view of God, that God is more of a therapist than a Lord. He's just there to call on when I need help. He's there to provide comfort when I'm depressed. He fixes it and makes it all better, and I'm happy and going my way again. They think that Jesus' mission today is to save us from sadness and discomfort. And while it is true that Jesus indeed does comfort his people, amen and amen, this narrow idea of what Jesus came to do and what he is seeking to do in the world today is not what the scripture teaches. It misses what the scriptures reveal about Jesus' true character. And last week we began to look at the passage traditionally known as the triumphal entry in which Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem and in this passage, as Jesus presents himself to Israel, we began to look at some attributes of Jesus that are revealed there in the text. And we're going to continue that today. We're going to continue to look at how Jesus is revealed to see that this is the Jesus that you and I must embrace ourselves. So I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's word, if you're not there already, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Again, this is the traditional passage known as the triumphal entry in which Jesus, his passion week begins and here he finally enters Jerusalem. Luke has been documenting since Luke chapter 9 verse 51 that Jesus was beginning his journey to Jerusalem and from Luke 9 to Luke 19 now we've seen Jesus continue on his way to teach and to heal and now he is finally entering Jerusalem that great city. So let's read our passage this morning, beginning in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. Follow along as I read. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his dis the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were 
sent went away and found it just as it was he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their coats on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This ends the reading of God's word. Now this morning, as we began last week, we're going to look at three attributes of Jesus revealed in this text, three attributes of Christ so that we would embrace him as our Lord and King. He is here in this text presented as Lord and King. Israel had a choice on that day. As we look at this text this morning, he's presented as Lord and King to us as well. We each, too, have a choice to make. Let's look at the first attribute that displayed in this passage, and this is just review from last week. And that is first, we saw his sovereignty in his preparation. We saw his sovereignty in his preparation. As he prepared to ride into Jerusalem, we saw his ultimate control. It was well thought out. It was intentional. And it, namely, his sovereignty was expressed in three ways. First was his carefully planned arrival. You'll remember as we traced these events last week, he orchestrated the events leading up to this time so that, number one, he would arrive in Jerusalem instead of being arrested elsewhere. Remember, there was a bounty on his head. He had to get to Jerusalem so that all the plan of God could be fulfilled. But the Pharisees were looking to arrest him anywhere. But he orchestrated events so that he would actually arrive and get to Jerusalem. But he, he orchestrated the events also so that, number two, he would arrive with a large amount of Galilean pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for Passover. These pilgrims gave him a degree of cover as the popularity was surrounding him, he, the religious leaders didn't feel like they could move in because of the firm that was built up around Jesus. And that leads to the third way he orchestrated these events is that he'd be welcomed with a great amount of fanfare because of the news had spread regarding the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so he had a carefully planned arrival. But we also saw his sovereignty and his knowledge of the donkey. Again, as we just read, on this Sunday morning of Passion Week, as he prepares to enter the city, he set up things in such a way so that he knew that there was a donkey that was there in Bethphage, and he sent his disciples to go and to retrieve it and to bring it back. And the, the way the text recounts it is that Jesus knew exactly where those donkeys were. He knew exactly what was, uh, where they were to fetch them, and they brought it back. And it shows that he is in control, that he's orchestrating these events. He is going to do it according to his agenda. And ultimately, he was, number three, he was, it was fulfillment of prophecy. We saw his sovereignty in the fulfillment of prophecy. 
Why does he ride in on a donkey? Well, Zechariah 9 verse 9 had prophesied that this would be the way that Israel's king would come to them, would come riding on a colt of a donkey. Jesus knew that this prophecy had been given 500 years previous and he carefully orchestrated events in order to fulfill it on that day. He was Israel's rightful king. He was going to fulfill that prophecy. And so he entered Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey. Now by one reckoning, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies when he walked upon this earth, which is amazing. This is just one of them. But this points to the veracity of the word of God that, that the prophecies that were given years in advance came to fruition and were fulfilled to the letter in the life of Jesus Christ. And so we see that his sovereignty is clear. He's in control of these events here in the Passion Week. But there's a second attribute uh, that we need to see in this text, and this is where we'll begin our new material for this morning, and that is that this text reveals his glory, his glory in the adoration that he receives, his glory in the adoration that he receives, and we see this in verses 36 through 40. Verse 36 Verse 35 tells us that he sat on the donkey. And then verse 36, it says, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And so Jesus begins to then walk, or the, rather the donkey begins to walk as he begins to ride and go into Jerusalem. Now for us today, riding on a donkey might seem strange. Uh, how many of us expected King George to be uh, going into uh, in, on, in England riding on a, the foal of a donkey, right? I mean, that's not typical... Uh, royal fanfare is to be riding on a donkey but this was not simply created by the prophet Zechariah and this was not created by Jesus there is precedent for this in the scriptures a thousand years earlier when King David was old and about to die remember David had many sons and so there began this battle of going who was going to be king after David one of his sons Adonijah proclaimed himself to be king he gathered some men around him and simply said I'm going to be king but when David heard this, listen to what he said. And this is quoted in 1 Kings chapter 1. It says, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon, which is a spring. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel and then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Therefore, when Zechariah in Zechariah 9 verse 9 prophesied that Israel's king would come riding upon a donkey, he was only following the pattern that was set by David and Solomon that the future king of David, the future greater son of David would too ride upon a donkey. Jesus is the greater son of David. He is the perfect king of Israel. He would usher in a time of peace and prosperity. He would be the great king. And so this, he, Jesus illustrates as he goes down the Mount of Olives towards Israel, towards Jerusalem rather. The disciples begin to see what's happening. They've, two of them have been commissioned to go and get the donkey. They bring it back. Jesus gets on it. And they begin to move forward and, and there's great fervor as the disciples that are there around him are, are, are excited and they're, and they're beginning to see what's taking place as Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem and he's going to go in with great fanfare. And so it says, verse 36, that they spread their cloaks on the road. 
They spread their cloaks. Again, this can sound strange to modern ears, but it's not without an Old Testament precedent. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu is appointed king over Israel. And when the men hear that he is now the new king, listen to what they do to show their submission to this new king. It says in 2 Kings 9 verse 13, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So they take off their garments, they allow the king to walk over them, and it shows that a part of them is now laid down under the feet of the king, and it shows their submission to that king. It was a sign that they were submitted. He had dominion over them. They were under his feet. And therefore, the people on this day of Jesus' triumphal entry were showing their submission to Jesus. Now, we're beginning to see that even though Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross five days later, here on this Sunday, they are truly adoring him as their king. And as we go through the text, we'll, we'll, we'll track the change of attitude that give, takes us from Sunday to Friday. But here on Sunday, it is with great celebration. The other gospel writers include the details that some cut branches, palm branches, and they laid that, those upon the ground as well, showing their celebration and excitement, the jubilation that they had. But it's important to remember that the crowd that was welcoming Jesus, that were saying these things and doing these things, it was a mixed crowd. Luke here seems to only highlight the disciples. He mentions that it's the disciples that are in this crowd, as verse 37 says. But the other Gospels note how this is a mix. They talk about how, uh, and particularly John chapter 12 says this. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And we also find out later that there's Pharisees that are here in this crowd. And so this is a mixture. This is not just pure disciples who have already trusted and believed in him. This is um, many who are there for the feast of Passover and are whipped up in the excitement of the day. But we see here, as I said, in the praise that Jesus receives, we see his glory in the adoration as he's adored by the crowd. And the first way that we see he is, uh, we see his glory is number one in his mighty works that are mentioned. His mighty works. Look at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Stop right there. So, here we see that Jesus mounted the donkey. The cloaks are being laid down. We know from other gospel writers, the branches are being laid down. Jesus is slowly, the donkey is slowly making its way um, over the crest of the Mount of Olives and beginning to make their way down the mount and they begin to rejoice and to praise God it says rejoice and praise God with a loud voice this was not a quiet affair they were they were shouting they were giving great praise and what's the reason for it at the end of verse 37 it says for all the mighty works that they had seen these disciples particularly the pilgrims that had even followed Jesus up into this festival where Jesus had traveled from Galilee all the way down over the course of several days uh, up to Jerusalem, they'd witnessed God working in their midst. They'd seen God working through the servant Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, the Spirit-anointed Messiah. 
as John notes, that many were there and there was much talk about because of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That miracle alone was uh, set the nation in a buzz. But even as Luke documents, there are, have been many miracles. There have been many mighty works that Jesus has done. Most recently, they'd seen a blind man receive sight down in Jericho. But over the course of his whole ministry, the disciples have seen the lame walk, the lepers cleansed, and the mute speak. They'd witnessed men have demons cast out of them. They've seen Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves and have it be still. They've seen amazing, mighty works of God through Jesus. And all these mighty works pointed to one thing, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He was indeed God in human flesh. And they rejoiced and they praised God. And friends, for us today, we have those works recorded for us in Holy Scripture. The mighty works of God that were displayed through Jesus, we know about them because they were written down, because God, through his Spirit, ordained in his sovereignty that they would be captured for us and that they would be transmitted down through the centuries, that they would be translated into our language, that we might have them before us, that we might read of them. And what's, why were these Gospels written? Why was it all put together? Well, as John put it at the end of his Gospel, he says, these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, the fact that you have a Bible sitting in your lap so that you might know life in Jesus' name is a mercy of God. His mercy to us that we might be able to know of his Son, that we might know of the mighty works that God did through his Son that we might put our faith and trust in Jesus alone, that we might believe in him and have life, new life, spiritual life in his name. Yes, we have physical life as we sit here breathing, our hearts beating now, but it takes a work of God that we would have spiritual life, that we would be born again in the spirit. So the question for each one of us is, we have the record here. We have the account of who Jesus is. We have the record of what he did. So the question for each one of us is, do we believe what is written there? Do we trust in Jesus, the son? Do we believe in the works that he displayed? Or will we harden our hearts, closing ourselves off to Christ? Of course, the greatest work that Jesus did was to pay for sin upon the cross and then rise again on the third day. And the great, wonderful news, the good news, the gospel news is that all who place their faith in him are able to receive life in his name, able to receive forgiveness of their sin. And even now, 2,000 years after these events have taken place, Jesus is still dispensing life to dead sinners. Jesus' mercy is still extended to those today who would place their faith and believe in this son. So my question is, do you know him? Do you know this Christ? Have you placed your faith in him? No one else can do that for you. It is, a, it is something that you must do individually. Look to him and be saved. 
And so the first way we see his glory is in his mighty acts that, are, is rem, that we're reminded of here in verse 37 in the praise of the disciples. But the second way we see his glory here is the praise he receives as Messiah. The praise he receives as Messiah in verse 38. Verse 38 tells us what the crowd was saying. What was coming out of their mouth? It says, verse 38, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now the first part of their statement here comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm because it predicted the coming of the Messiah and the response of the people when he came. And here Jesus receives their praise and he doesn't try to to quiet them. In fact, we'll see later that the Pharisees want them quiet and he, he says, no, they, they must go on. This praise is due to me. Now later on, Jesus in uh, the next chapter, Luke 20, verse 17, he's gonna apply Psalm 118 to himself. And so we know that Jesus himself viewed Psalm 118 as stating his own mission and applying to him. Psalm 118 is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is the greatest most quoted psalm. Psalm 118 is the second with 13 citations in the New Testament. And as we see these words, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, we should, if we've been reading Luke's gospel carefully, we should remember that these words are very similar to what came in Luke chapter 13, verse 35. And there he predicted, he said, Jerusalem, you're not gonna see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at that time, it seemed impossible. How was Jesus gonna get into Jerusalem, not only alive, but also with crowds of people from Jerusalem singing his praises? It seemed impossible because the religious establishment was dead set against him. And yet here he is riding the foal of a donkey down the Mount of Olives, getting a hero's welcome into Jerusalem as they sing, blessed is the king who comes the name of the Lord. This phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, comes in, as I said, Psalm 118, verse 26. And the verse just previous, they've said, save us, O Lord. What's translated into the New Testament as Hosanna. Hosanna, we say that word, we've repeated that word, it's a transliteration from the Hebrew. It means save us. It's a declaration, it's a request for salvation. And so they say, save us, O Lord, and then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who brings this salvation. They recognize here on the Mount of Olives that Jesus is the king who comes to bring that salvation. Now, unfortunately, we know that on their minds is not salvation from sin, but a salvation from the Roman overlords. They want a deliverer who will set them free from this oppression. We know just earlier in Luke 19 that they believed the kingdom was going to appear and that the Messiah, was Jesus was going to unleash vengeance upon the enemies and Jesus had to tell a whole parable to, te- to remind them that the kingdom was not going to appear right away, that you're going to have to wait a little bit. And then when I get to Jerusalem, I'm not setting up my kingdom. And even though he tried to, sh- to correct their belief, it was so dominant in their minds that they continued to have it there. There was no Jew in the first century who understood the idea of a suffering Messiah. 
Let me say it again. There was no one within the Jewish establishment in the first century who believed that the Messiah must suffer before he reigns. All of them believed that the reigning was going to come next. So for Jesus to say, even to his disciples three times and more, that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be delivered up and killed, they didn't get it. And yet, even though they are saying these words out of a desire for political deliverance, what they say is true. Jesus is the, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He is Israel's true king. He will set up his kingdom when he arrives one day, when he returns. And Luke continues to record their words here. He says, the second half of verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This reminds us of the birth narratives of the angels declaring the birth of Jesus. Glory in the highest, right? And on earth, peace. But here it says peace in heaven. I believe what they're saying is in their great exaltation, they're saying that God has come. He has brought what we have desired. Everything is right. Heaven is coming to earth. They were thrilled. God must be at peace with Israel because his Messiah has come. And so therefore God, who inhabits the highest heaven, must receive glory. These people were simply in great joy and adoration of Jesus. They were not just having a good time. They were excited and felt deeply that their deliverer had come finally. They had been hundreds of years of anticipation, waiting for this man to come, the Messiah to come, to enter Jerusalem, and here he is. As we look at the words of this this crowd, though, were reminded that Jesus indeed is the true king. He is the one whom God has sent to fulfill all the promises. He is God's son, and therefore, the res this response of the people is the right response. Adoration is the right response to who Jesus is. And so as we see these people thronging around Jesus and praising him with a loud voice, our hearts should resonate and say, yes, Hosanna, save us. Yes, blessed is he. Blessed are you, Lord Jesus, because you are the king. The question is, do we give him such a response? Are we so enthusiastic over who Jesus is? Are we willing to stake our lives upon this? There's a third way we see his glory in this text, and that is in his prerogative for praise. So we see it in his mighty works, we see it in his praise as Messiah, and we see thirdly in his prerogative for praise. He deserves the praise no matter what. Indeed, it is too good to be true that Jerusalem is actually receiving her king. However, there are indications that not all is well. Not all in the crowd wanted to see him or to praise him, and we see this in verse 39. Look at it with me. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees had gone out with the crowd, with all the fanfare, and, and they weren't out there to praise Jesus, though. They were out there simply to observe, to make sure things didn't get out of hand, to know what was going on. They didn't want anything happening without their knowledge. And so as long as Jesus remains around and is a popular teacher, they will continue to watch his movements. Obviously, they wanted to arrest him, but they can't do it now because he's being thronged by crowds of people. But they're perturbed. Pharisees hate this praise that he's receiving. And so they, he asked 
Jesus to silence his disciples. Notice the Pharisees can't do it themselves. The Pharisees can't just speak up and say, listen, everybody, be quiet. He, they know that Jesus is in charge. They need Jesus to give the word if these disciples are going to stop. Now, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had sought to be quiet. Remember, he'd heal somebody and he'd say, listen, don't go tell anybody. Or he, the, demon, the demons were coming out of Jesus and they wanted to proclaim the identity of Jesus and they says, Jesus silences the demons to be quiet. Well, here it's changed. Here, they're saying it loud and proud for all to hear. And Jesus is not silencing them. He is going one last time into Jerusalem. He is presenting himself as the king and he is leaving nothing on the table. And Jesus replies to this, some of the Pharisees, look at verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, these stones, the very stones would cry out. If these disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. Friends, I believe we need to see here a, a, a veiled reference to deity. Who else can make this sort of claim? Now listen, if the people around me stop praising me, then the inanimate stones would begin to voice praise? Well, I think it would only take the creator of those stones that would be able to make that happen. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Creation itself will begin to do something miraculous for Jesus. The rocks aren't going to do that for anybody else. They're only going to speak up for Jesus. All creation is a servant to the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So here, as we come to the end of verse 40, we see, do you see this portrait of the king of glory before us? That Jesus, as he entered in Jerusalem, was, was displayed for all to see. He was proclaimed to be the king. He was worshipped and adored. He was praised for the mighty works that he did. Does this not make your heart rejoice that Jesus is the rightful king? That we know this king? If he is the uncontested king, if he is the rightful one, then we need to ask ourselves if we've truly embraced him as such. I think often in the conservative evangelical church, those of us that prize and love doctrine, we want to get it right, want to get truth about the Lord right, that we can often seek to get the doctrine right, the T's crossed, the I's dotted, and yet sometimes we can just leave it at that. We can want to get the clarity about who Jesus is, but we sometimes stop short to go, are, do we not just know the truth about Jesus, but do we treasure Jesus? Do we not just declare him to be the king of glory, but do we delight in the fact that he's the king of glory? Does it change us as we seek to know him and draw close to him and commune with him. He's, Jesus is not just a doctrinal proposition that's out there in the midst of our systematic theology. He is our savior. He is our king. He is the one who has saved and redeemed us. He's the one to, sought to draw us close in relationship. He paid the price so that we might know him. So we cannot leave him and the truth about him as words on a page. We must seek to know him as our Lord, as our Savior. We must confess him as the Lord of glory as we walk out those doors and we go to live amongst our community, as we go to work. 
to go to school, as we live in our neighborhoods. Jesus is Lord and we must delight in, in, such, in that truth. Friends, we can't live as if Jesus is simply our own private savior. He's the lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world. He, was, he is the king of glory. He was hailed as such on that day when he entered Jerusalem. However, many in that crowd will not stand with him by the end of the week. Their commitment was tested and was found wanting. But friends, if we love the Lord and are submitted to him, then the question is, are we living unashamed for him in the nine to five? Are we confessing him as Lord in private and in public? His glory demands that we serve him with our lives all times and all ways. May he continue to reform us and change us that we might be powerful witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, for the king of glory, wherever we go no matter the cost. What we've seen, first of all, is sovereignty. We've seen, secondly, his glory. Let's look, third and finally, at his love. The third attribute we see of Christ in this text is his love in his lamentation. We'll see his love displayed as he laments over the city. And we see this in verses 41 through 45, through 44, rather. Luke alone records this incident. There's other places where he, he weeps over Jerusalem, but this particular wording and this particular time and location, Luke is the only one to record it. And this, this is striking. I, we, we have to try to understand the scene here. He's in the midst of the greatest wave of popularity and praise that he's seen. The most public declaration of who he is in the most central and pivotal location in Jerusalem. He's being hailed as the Messiah. The Old Testament scriptures are being sung to him. People are laying down their garments. They haven't done that before. They're placing palm branches in the road. They've, there's never been anything like this. And I, I just think in the midst of that wave of all the voices and the loud shouts and, and everything going on, we can all understand the, the pull of popularity the pull of praise, to get swept up in these things, in the emotions of the crowd. These days, the emotions of the crowd can happen both physically in, uh, present as well as online. But the, the pull of the crowds and the emotions and getting pulled along is so strong. But Jesus isn't getting pulled along. Jesus understands exactly what's going on. His mind is set. He is disciplined and focused. There's no wool being pulled over his eyes. He knows the hearts of the nation. The scene is remarkable. Again, the crowds are singing his praises. And yet, in the midst of those praises, as he's riding this colt down the Mount of Olives slowly, at some point, he, he comes out from behind a building or a tree, or a, a knoll in, in the hill, and he gets sight of the city. Look at verse 41. And he drew near and saw the city, and he wept over it. He wept over it. He lays eyes on the city, and his eyes fill with tears, and his throat gets choked up because of the great emotion that comes over him. It elicits great grief. Now the word here for wept, 
You think, where else did Jesus weep in the Gospels? Well, we're often drawn to the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, that simply has two words, Jesus wept. That was at the tomb of Lazarus. And there was a sweet scene as Jesus is there weeping with the other mourners as they recognize a friend has died, even though he knows he will raise him from the dead. But the word for wept in John eleven thirty five 35 is different than the word for wept here in Luke 19. The word in, in John 11 is more of a private contained weeping. But here in Luke 19, it indicates more of a loud wailing kind of weeping. In other words, the crowd cries out in praise, and Jesus cries out in sorrow and grief. Did the crowd stop? Did they pause and listen? Were they in shock to see that this one that they were hailing and worshiping and adoring was suddenly not joyfully receiving the praise, but instead was, was crying out in agony and in, in grief? We don't know. But the contrast of emotions is so striking. But Jesus is obviously not celebrating at the same level as the people. He's sobered by what is still to come. And that overflows when he lays his eyes on the city for the first time. Now, Jerusalem was a magnificent city. And those who saw it there in the first century would uh, testify to that, especially with Herod's temple as the crown jewel. It was beautiful. And it would arrest the sight of anyone. It would take your breath away as you crested that hill. And yet as Jesus laid eyes upon that beautiful city, he saw through all the pomp, through all the religiosity, and he saw a nation that was spiritually dead. And it broke his heart. Look at verse 42. Listen to what he says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus laments that Israel does not know the things that make for peace. Here, particularly, Jesus says that would that you, even you, of all people, Israel should have known. Israel was was special, as Paul says in Romans 9, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. They had everything spiritually they should have known. You, even you, Jesus says, had known on this day, this day. I believe that this phrase, this day, is an allusion to Psalm 118, verse 24, which is a verse you all have heard before. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As we've already talked about Psalm 118, what is this day? It's the day that the Messiah is revealed. This day that Israel should have accepted their Messiah. The day that they cried out Hosanna, they should have understood it was taking place, and yet they didn't. He says that they had known the things that make for peace. As we said, they wanted peace with Rome. They wanted physical security, but their desires were fleshly and only on the human level. They did not know a true peace from God. Luke 2, we met a man named Simeon who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, was waiting for a peace of Israel. And rightly so, he was waiting for the Messiah to bring that consolation, to bring that peace. Only he could bring peace with God and peace with fellow men. But Israel failed to see it. What I want you to see here, friends, is that Jesus' lament over this city, the loud weeping and wailing that he experienced was out of a love for his people. If he was only there in angry vindication, angry wrath, then he would have just denounced punishment 
and walked away. But instead, the tears, the weeping, the, the great lamentation comes out of his love. He's wailing over their hardness of heart. It's like a parent grieving over a wayward child. Great emotion comes from great love. And Jesus then reveals that because they have rejected him and did not know the time of their visitation, as the end of verse 44 says, judgment is coming. There is spiritual judgment and there is physical judgment. Spiritually, end of verse 42, he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The door is closing for Israel. They've had three and a half years of Jesus' ministry for them to see the Messiah, for them to trust and to believe in him, but that door is quickly closing and it will be hidden from them. Pretty soon God will leave them in their unbelief. But physically there's judgment coming as well. And Jesus here gives a significant prediction. He's gonna uh, elaborate on this prediction in chapter 21, and so we're not gonna go into great detail here but he predicts that Israel will suffer defeat and devastation at the hand of an army. And we know in history, this army was the Roman army. They will surround Jerusalem so that no one can escape. They will destroy the city and the temple, leaving no stone upon another. And they will destroy the people. Jesus says, they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. All this came true, friends, in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. It happened exactly as Jesus said. Listen to how Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, recounts some of the events. Just two quotations for you. One, he says, while the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike were massacred. Second quotation, Josephus recounts this. He says, the emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city to on the west. All the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was so completely razed to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. Jesus' words were precisely fulfilled. Jesus is lamenting what is coming upon his people. And so we're left here this morning, friends, with a deep sense of Christ's love for his people, for those who are lost, for those who do not know, for those who miss it, and also the sober reality that judgment is coming. His love does not negate his judgment. His love does not negate punishment. But now, in this day, there is patience. Second Peter chapter 3 says that in the patience of God, he's withholding his judgment so that those all might have an opportunity to repent. He desires that all would come to repentance, that all would embrace him. He offers himself to all. And friends, we have this reality that because Israel was blinded and because they rejected their savior, Jesus was put on a cross five days later. And because of that sacrifice upon the cross, you and I are able to be forgiven today. And the great plan of God, this rejection of Jesus resulted in life for us. And to that, we give all the glory and praise to God. Who could devise such a wonderful plan? Who could make it possible that we, who were Gentiles, that were so far from the Jewish covenants, could be able to be included, to be able to benefit from the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ? And yet we have. 
And today he makes himself available to all, saying that his name is to be proclaimed among the nations and that forgiveness may be found in his name alone. And so the call to all of us this morning is to embrace Jesus Christ. We've seen his sovereignty. We've seen his glory. We've seen his love. Will you trust in him this morning? Will you completely and wholeheartedly trust in him alone for your salvation, believing that only in him is your soul safe for all of eternity? If you don't know him, we'd love to introduce you to him this morning and invite you to come and help us show you how you might know Jesus Christ this morning. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the portrait of Christ that we've been able to see in this text. That we've been able to see a king who is humble, mounted on the foal of a donkey, seemingly with without great military honors. And yet he was the king. He was hailed as such. And yet, Lord, there were many that day that said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord who also later cried, crucify him. Oh, Father, this reality humbles us. And I pray for those who are gathered here, for those who maybe have just sat in church in it, hearing the word of God for the first time or those who have sat hearing the word of God for years. Father, may you do the mighty work through your spirit to break through blind eyes and hard hearts. May you enable them to see that they are lost without Christ, that real judgment is coming and unless they turn to Christ, repent of their sin, and trust in him wholly. There is no hope. But Father, we thank you for the love that you displayed in the giving of your son. And may you help us to treasure that love all the more. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.